So this is one of the, the most popular stories in the Bible. So I, I feel like I've read this a thousand times and memorized it since I was a kid. As I'm reading the text and going, I, I, I don't even need to study. I can just, I can just do something. And, but but I, I read it a few times and I thought, is there something in this story that... I've missed. Is there something more to this story that I may have never looked at before? Jesus is saying some radical things for this time. And so I I kind of began to dig into the history of it, and that was a mistake. So for the last two nights, around 2 a.m., I'm walking around my neighborhood trying to wrestle the theology of all this down to the ground. And uh, I opened up a little bit of a a can of of worms. So I I started thinking, all right, Jesus is saying these radical things to these people of this time. But is this the first time any of this has ever been said in human history? Is this the very first time on the world stage that this message has ever been uttered, this message of Christ and his love and his command that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we care for our enemies? So history is a fascinating thing. We can glean a lot from it. It points us to how it is that we got here. We can even look in our own lives, as short as they are in the grand scale of history, and and see the cycles that continue to repeat the things that we keep doing over and over and over. Some of them very good, some of them very bad, and we keep asking ourselves, why am I doing that? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep ending up in the same place? And so history is an important thing, and the Old Testament is the history of God's people. It's incredible how little has changed. We have a completely different cultural overlay, and there have been many, many cultural overlays, but the heart of man remains remarkably the same. The things that we deal with at the heart level remain very, very constant, no matter what culture we find ourselves in. So I I zoomed out as far as as I could, and like I said, went on a couple of of walks to to, to try to consider this. I have often said that business and faith do not mix well. It's kind of like Coke and ketchup. They don't mix well, and history and theology also sometimes don't mix well. They sort of stand in this little truce that they have for each other. They need each other, especially in issues of faith Without a historical context, your theology kind of falls apart or it becomes whatever you want it to be. So history and theology kind of hold each other accountable when sometimes they don't like each other so much either. Jesus in this story is explaining once again his 
central message in the story of the Good Samaritan. He's saying that we should love one another and we should love our neighbors as ourselves and that we should love God with all we've got. This is nothing new. This is what he's been saying all along. Now let's dive into the history just a little bit. The Romans have occupied Judea. The Jews want them gone. They want their freedom back. They don't want this new culture encroaching upon them. There have been revolts that have been put down with an iron fist. There have been people executed. There have been people beaten. Taxis, tax, taxis. Taxis have been painted blue and taxes have been raised on the people and uh, it's a steep. But then you have this religious thing going on where the, uh, the religious leaders are kind of stirring up this f- fundamentalist vigor So there's always unrest in the region, and it's anything but the promised land, and it's anything but shalom. And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, is this the first time this has ever happened to the Jews? Is this the first time they've ever been forced to submit to a power that they don't want over them? And the answer is hardly. This is a bit of their story. In fact, it's woven all throughout their history. But have they ever been told to love their enemies? And that's the quandary. We read the Old Testament and we're often faced with this stark reality. The children of Israel are freed from Egypt. They're brought out into the desert and then God begins to create this culture. And it's in the desert and it's separated from the rest of the world. So the way we read the Old Testament, we see a very separated, exclusive people being established, kept away from the rest of the world and told really not to mix with the rest of the world. In fact, the tribes and peoples that are marked for destruction, they're not even to associate with them. Because if they do, they'll end up becoming a perverted version of who they're supposed to be. So, reading the Old Testament, this is obvious. And it's obvious to teach from these texts about how we have to be vigilant about the mixture that we allow into our lives and how we have to guard our hearts. But Jesus is kind of flying a little in the face of this. He's standing up a bit to this tradition. So the the Jews wanting the Romans to be destroyed and them to get their freedom back. This isn't new. This is what they've always wanted. They just can't seem to stay on the same page with their God for more than a generation. And so the back and forth and the back and forth ensues and they just find themselves worshiping whatever feels good at the time. Jesus moves right in on this idea that they are elite and separatist and tells them to love their enemies. Love their enemies. For them, their tradition is they shouldn't even be speaking 
to their enemies, much less loving their enemies. But Jesus comes along and says things like, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So how do we reconcile this? Is this one of these theological quandaries that we just need to back slowly away from and talk about something else? Or is, is there more to the story? So searching through the times that the, the Jews were forced into exile, we always see the warning signs. There is always a prophetic voice warning them of what is to happen. In other words, this isn't what God wants. He wants the people to himself, and he's warning them of what is about to happen if they continue on the path that they're on. They're always told what will happen, and they never listen. Story of my life. They never listen, and they become at one point or another a part of the leading empire of that region. And we're told that this is God's judgment upon them. But, and this is important, God never speaks these things without speaking about what's on the other side of that. That there is redemption and restoration on the other side of that if they will, what, return to him. All right, so the Old Testament is the story of the children of Israel. If we read the Bible as history alone, we're missing something very, very important. Because if we read the story of the children of Israel through the Bible and just say that is the history of that region, we're, we're, missing, we're missing it. Reading the Bible in the Old Testament, you would assume that the Jews are the de facto superpower of this area. And they're not. They're actually a very, very small player in a much, much larger region, very much like it is today. You have this small country, very powerful country, but there are superpowers near and far. So the Israelites' story is that they are first enslaved in Egypt, brought out of Egypt, brought into the promised land. They rebel. They're carried away into exile. They get carried away to Babylon. They're overcome by the Assyrian Empire. They're overcome by the Persian Empire and assimilated. But somehow there's this remnant. Somehow the, the culture is kept alive. Somehow they get back to where it was that they started. So, what's this got to do with the Good Samaritan? Or loving our neighbor as ourselves. What Jesus is saying to these people is something that has actually been a part of their culture for a very long time. It's not because it's something that God had originally planned for them. It's something that they chose, and this is a reaction to it. The idea of loving their enemies is actually embedded in the culture. And they're missing the point. 
and not realizing that God has been speaking through the prophets. God is their redeemer. He will not abandon them. And even their enemies will be their redemption. But they want everything on their own terms. They want God to bless what they decide. And as you can see, little has changed in the hearts of men. The irony is that God is trying to do exactly what it is they want. So let's go back to history for a minute. Let me, let me show you an illustration and try to unpack this and then get, get to the point of all this. The children of Israel have been defeated. They're carried off into Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah prophesies that this is going to happen. He prophesies that this is going to happen at the hands of the king Nebuchadnezzar. And he prophesies under the power of the Holy Spirit to the point that it is recorded in Holy Scripture that Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of the Lord in this. So they're carried off into exile by a king who does not know the Lord and who worships other gods, and yet he is the servant of the Lord in this context according to the prophet Jeremiah and God through Jeremiah tells them to flat out settle in. If you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 29. And we'll read from verse 5. This is God's instruction to his people in exile through the prophet Jeremiah. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what's going on? What's going on here? On the one hand, we have the God of the Old Testament separating and making a very, very exclusive people set apart to himself. But in his judgment, he's telling them to settle in and serve their captors and pray for them. He's telling them to love their enemies. He's even going so far as to tell them that their own welfare is wrapped up in the destiny of those who have conquered them. He's telling them to engage in and associate with the culture. Interesting. So a generation passes. The Persian Empire rises. The Persian king Cyrus defeats the Babylonian Empire. And now the Persian Empire is the largest empire the world has ever seen to this point. Cyrus inherits the Jews, but he has great forethought. His kingdom 
the monarchy has grown so large and so culturally diverse that he decides that he's not going to impose a state religion. He's not going to have a god of the empire. Because he has the, the knowledge of history himself, and that has never worked well. So we go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. And through the prophet Isaiah, we read, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and level the exalted places, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, this is pretty amazing stuff here. Yahweh is calling to a king who does not know him and speaks words of conquest. This has never been done outside of Israel before. This is the kind of language God uses among his people, but it's even more compelling than that. God calls to Cyrus, a man who does not know him, and calls him the anointed one through the prophet Isaiah. This word in Hebrew is Messiah. Messiah. Translated into Greek, Christos. How can this be? Never in any other place in all of Jewish history and the Bible is a Gentile called the Anointed One, a Messianic figure. Cyrus was known as the shepherd king in Israel history. And yet this is a man that worships other gods. Cyrus set the Jews free, restored them to their homeland, allowed them to worship according to their laws and customs and he and his successor Darius rebuilt the temple. So how does this all boil down theologically? This contrast between God's exclusivity and then his commanding to associate and mix with culture. God wants his people. He wants his people exclusively. It is and has always been his desire to establish his kingdom. He was giving the Jews the promised land, a new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. Adam and Eve had this choice. They chose to rebel. They were forced from the garden. The Jews did the same thing and were forced from the promised land. But the sovereign Lord is going to have 
his way. Even in the midst of our poor choices, God keeps establishing his kingdom and man keeps trying to own it and run it according to his own terms. This is the oldest story. And so we see through the, ch- the children of Israel and in our own lives that God is saying, as the book of Song of Solomon says, come away with me. Come away with me. I want you all to myself. And our response is we choose exile. And his response is, if this is what you really want, then you have that choice. Here's how to live in exile. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Go the extra mile. Forgive those who trespass against you. Never forget who you are. You are in this world, but you are not of it. If exile is what you desire, then love is the only hope of remembering why you are here. So love one another. Love is the only hope that you will remember that there is more. That you can leave exile. That you can come away with me. Love is the only hope of the coming kingdom and love is the only force that will conquer all. In 1879, in Babylon, a cylinder was found from King Cyrus stating his world view. And he writes, Now that I put the crown of the kingdom of Iran, Babylon, and the nations of the four directions on the head with the help of my gods, I announce that I will respect the traditions, customs, and religions of the nations to my empire and never let any of my governors and subordinates look down on or insult them as long as I am alive. From now on, until my God grants me the kingdom favor, I will impose my monarchy on no nation. Each is free to accept it, and if any one of them rejects it, I never resolve upon war to reign. Cyrus made this claim in the name of Ahura Mazda the god of the Zoroastrianism. His posture toward the Jews and God's direct calling him the anointed one means that there must have been some allegiance to Yahweh. His willingness to allow religious freedom to reign in the empire demonstrates religious tolerance that allowed the people of God and not the monarchy to decide the spiritual future of the people. It also saved the Jews from utter extinction. The Babylonian exile saved the Jews, and they were to love their enemies and pray for their welfare. The Persians restored the Jews, and they were religiously tolerant something that we often 
criticized. The Roman Empire killed Jesus, persecuted the church, killed many of the apostles and early church leaders, and saved Christianity. History shows over and over God's willingness to come for us where we are, but also allow us to stay where we are if that's what we want. So we live in the freest nation on this planet, the land of the free, the home of the brave. And many believe we are under the judgment and wrath of God. And maybe we are. But ultimately, it's up to God's people. Jesus said the correct posture in today's scripture is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So I suppose until this is the normative posture of our lives, we have nothing to complain about. We don't even get a vote. We don't even have a seat at the table. We're just crying about how things are. And it's not okay to sit on the sidelines and bemoan the state of things here in exile. We've chosen this. And it will not change until we unchoose it. The good Samaritan bent down and took the life of his enemy in his hands and cared for him and nursed him back to health. There are a lot of ways to look at how that might look in our lives. Maybe we finally just make peace with the neighbor whose dog keeps pooping in our yard. Right? Maybe we just let that go. Perhaps it's time to reach a hand of forgiveness to a family member who's wounded us. Maybe it's time to truly and sincerely let go of people who have wronged us along the way. We have such need for justice. And we can think about the ways that we've been hurt and obsess about them and daydream about the way that we would like to see that person rise and realize what they've done and crawl up to our feet and beg for forgiveness. And we'd love to see that happen. And so we daydream it and it feels good, but we realize that's never going to happen. And even if it did happen, that would not be just. Maybe it's time to let go of all the things we allow to build up in our relationships. The things we just let linger in our marriage. I mean, what would it be like to be utterly and completely open again? Maybe it's time to stop turning the anger inward. If we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and the Lord our God with is in our heart, then perhaps to not love ourselves is to not obey the command. Maybe it's time to stop considering the place where we are on the end times calendar 
and realize that the kingdom is coming, period. But it will not come until God's people choose to leave exile. We have a say in what happens in our world. We have a say in whether or not we fall into judgment. We have a say in whether or not our community experiences the love of Christ. We have a say in whether or not our families disintegrate. We have a say in whether we live awake or asleep. We have a say in what comes next. We have the only say. We each get to choose whether we will remain in exile or whether we will come away. Everyone must choose. It's in the single choices to love with all our hearts, our God, and our neighbor that the tide turns. It's in the single choices to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use that, even if that's someone that is very close to us, that evil will be overrun with good. It's in the single choices to let go of those offenses once and for all, that we choose to live free and no longer in exile. May we make these choices every day. Jesus said, Which do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And so, Heavenly Father, we come before you today contemplating the ways that we've lived in exile, separated from you by our own choice, by our own preference, by our own demands, by our own wills. You have called us to yourself, a special and unique people, redeemed by the blood of Christ. And yet we've lived willfully in exile. Show us the areas that we've lived this way, Holy Spirit. We invite you in the coming hours and in this week to reveal these places that we may indeed come away with you. In Christ's name, we pray this. Amen.